Hello everyone, this is Kellen Cavanero, and welcome to another episode of Inflammatory Content, the podcast about immunology and biomedical research more broadly. I'm here to interview world-class researchers to broadly communicate the cutting-edge work going on in their laboratories and to get to know the people behind the science. So sit back, relax, and let's dive into some science. And if you enjoy the show, please consider sharing the episode, leaving a review, or donating to support our work. Thanks for listening. Today, our guest is Dr. Cherie Gur-Cohen. Dr. Gur-Cohen is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Regenerative Medicine at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Gur-Cohen's work has unearthed the lymphatic capillary network as a novel stem cell niche component, and her multidisciplinary strategy has advanced our knowledge of how stem cells synchronize and coordinate tissue regeneration. Dr. Gur-Cohen completed her postdoc training with Dr. Elaine Fuchs at the Rockefeller University in New York and earned her PhD in the Department of Immunology in Dr. Tzvi Lapido's lab at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel. Dr. Gur-Cohen has published multiple high-profile papers in top-tier scientific journals, including Science, Cell Stem Cell, Nature Medicine, and Nature, among others. Dr. Gur-Cohen has received several awards and prizes for her work, including the prestigious Breakout Award for Young Investigators, the Revson Weizmann Award for Advancing Women in Science, the Helen and Martin Kimmel Stem Cell Award, and the HFSP and EMBO Postdoctoral Awards, among others. Dr. Gur-Cohen's laboratory is developing new experimental tools to probe the mechanisms involved in establishing a lymphatic niche that expands stem cell fate determinations and sets the stage for tumor formation and metastasis. In this conversation, Sheree and I talk about stem cells, lymphatics, and microscopy. As a relatively new PI, Sheree has a lot of advice for trainees in regards to choosing a postdoc, and we talk at length about the topic in this conversation. You can find links to the Gurko and Lab website and a reference to the paper we discuss in the show notes. So, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Sheree Gurkohen. Sheree, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's really exciting to be part of such an incredible initiative. So, thank you so much for doing it and for inviting me to participate. Uh, of course, of course. So, we're sitting here in your office in the UCSD Sanford Consortium, overlooking Torrey Pines Golf Course and Black's Beach, everyone's favorite nude beach in San Diego. <laughs> How did you so get here? Say. How did you get to this wonderful place? Great question. I think, you know, in many ways, once you look for a job, um, you look for many, many things of what's important for you, right? Um, one of the things that was important for me is a place that I can be happy, that my family will be happy, that my husband will have, you know, a work perspective, my kids will get good education, and that I will be able to do the great science that I like to do in the best possible place. And I think, you know, you, you have a lot of kind of places that go into the, that list and you're getting a short list of, okay, these are the places that I really, really want to go. And the combination, I think, of the scientific community here at the Sanford Consortium. So everyone basically in this building are doing stem cell work. So think about it, that every technology, every kind of question that you have about stem cells, if you want to just do IPS or if you want to do adult stem cells or embryonic stem cells, everything is here. When the community is so collaborative, right? You know, you can just like knock over the door, you know, just across the hall and 
I need some help and everyone is so helpful and and communicating science with you in a fun way I think you know that's that's key for me for my happiness in science and and establishing a lab so all that was kind of encompassed into what I really want to do and how I want to do it in a successful way and so yeah this place and you know the the beach and the golf course and how you know how beautiful it is was just a another kind of perk of enjoying it but the whole environment in San Diego is really wonderful to live in um, to have kids in my family is happy and I'm happy so I think it's all kind of you know went to a place that this is where I want to be great yeah, I like it here too. As, as everyone Clearly, knows. you grew up here, as right? Everyone so. Knows. <laughs> so, you are stem cell person through and through. The center of my universe. <laughs> Briefly, what is a stem cell? What is a stem cell? So, the way that I envision stem cell is a cell, right? You know, it's a cell in our body that can really regenerate an organ, a tissue. And as long as it has the capacity to do, to do that, then on my definition, it's a stem cell. And so, you know, if you think about it, for example, from a liver perspective, a lot of people saying there are no stem cells in the liver. We haven't identified those stem cells in the liver. As long as those cells have the capacity to regenerate an organ, then by my definition, and I think, you know, if you think about it, those cells have the capacity to regenerate the, the organ then they can be a stem cell at one particular point when injury is occurring, right? And so my focus um, right now in my lab, um, we're focusing on epithelial stem cells, and those are the stem cells that generate our skin, our hair, our epithelium in the, in the gut. And those stem cells usually regenerate very fast or very slow. It depends on the rate of how the tissue needs to be regenerated, right? So the skin, we have a completely new skin once uh, every month or so and we have a completely new intestine every few days or so so the rate of regeneration is very different depending on which tissue it is and what we are trying to understand is how those stem cells that exist in those tissues um, communicate with their environment to understand when and where to create tissue so with the big question of how a stem cell now to generate the right cell type at the right place, but also at the right time when tissue regeneration needs to happen. So all of those questions are really centered around the stem cells themselves. And I'm always thinking about it in a fun way. If I were a stem cell, would you trust your environment to tell you what to do? Or would you kind of change your environment in a way that will also maintain your identity? Because that's your essence, right? You need to maintain your identity as a stem cell. So otherwise, the tissue will be dead, right? It will mm -hmm. not be able to regenerate. And so looking at this from a little bit of a different lens, I guess, what a stem cell is doing to their environment to maintain its identity and what happened when we are having an injury, right? And regeneration needs to happen very fast. Mm -hmm. What the stem cells are basically doing, how they respond to those systemic changes that happen in our um, environment, how do they react to stress, how they react to what we eat, how they react to blood pressure, for example, when we are anxious, mm -hmm. things like that. So we are looking at that from a little bit of a different angle, but under the context of how those stem cells know to regenerate our tissues. And what is missing? Why in humans we cannot regrow a complete organ? When we are losing a limb, usually we lose it forever. 
why can't we do what salamanders are doing, right? Mm. You know, you cut a limb, it can regenerate the bone, the muscles, the, the, the nerves, everything is being regenerated at the same time with a perfect size control. Mm-hmm. Why it's not happening in, in our body? What is missing? What is missing in this synchronized regeneration? Mm-hmm. A lot of people, like general public, are familiar with the term stem cell. They may not think about it in the same way you do. What do you think the biggest misconception people have about stem cells is? It happens a lot. I think I also get a lot of emails from patients, from people that saw something on the news, that read something on the news. And I think we are, as scientists, failing to to tell the story that we found in the lab in, in the correct way, in the right way, and not necessarily in the most flashy way. Because when we write a news on our articles, then we're like, okay, that can cure whatever disease it is. And people that don't really understand the, you know, the basic kind of step-by-step process of from the bench of we found something interesting in the lab to actually moving to the clinic, there's a huge step that we still need to do. And I think we are, as scientists, still failing in, in explaining what exactly we found what may be the outcome of that, and what is the steps that we need to do in order to actually have it to the clinic. And so I think the biggest misconception that we have right now, and again, it's not the, the people that you know are failing to understand, it's our fault as scientists that we're unable to do it in the right way. And I think you know a platform like yourself is actually an amazing platform to get th- that type of information in the correct way. But what we are failing is actually taking those discoveries and lay them to very basic concepts and and the understanding that stem cells can be used today for transplantation, for simple transplantation. So for blood forming cells, the hematopoietic stem cells, we're doing it constantly in the clinic, right? People are undergoing bone marrow transplantation. They're giving cordless transplantation or bone marrow stem cell transplantation. And that's, you know, a regular things that people are undergoing the clinic today to cure blood cancers. But any other stem cell right now in terms of transplantation, we are still not there. We are still not as advanced as we are in understanding how stem cell transplantation can be happening, for example, in skin, in, in, in the gut, in any other organ, to be honest. So if we look at the 60s, yeah, I mean, some skin transplantation happened. And even, I think, four years ago, there was a huge breakthrough of using CRISPR technology to correct a gene in skin epithelium and then transplant that on a patient body. And so these things, the extreme conditions that we can take our knowledge and actually move it into the clinic will happen. But it's not something that we can do on a regular basis still. There's a lot of consideration that we need to take into place because while stem cells do what they're supposed to do in the normal regeneration capacity of our tissues, cancer stem cells will do exactly the same things. And so how can I prevent a situation where I'm transplanting a stem cells to regenerate a tissue but prevent the, the, the chances of creating a cancer at one point? Or even to create a competitive advantage, for example, from the cells that I transplanted from the healthy system that already exists in the body. And so there's a lot of consideration that we need to take into place. And I think 
we are as a scientist still failing of telling this to the public. Um, there's a lot of kind of clinics that you see out there that are basically using these misconceptions to get people's money. Um, and, and that's sad. And, and I feel like we need to do much better work in, in that. Yeah, I'm very into the health and wellness space. And I hear a lot about people going to say Panama or another country outside of yeah. the U.S. to get some stem cell therapy for you know, injections into their joints. Autism is one of the most kind of famous ones. Stem cell transplantation, mesenchymal stem cell transplantation mm -hmm. to cure autism. And we think that this is premature. Like maybe in the future, stem cells will be able to help with some of these conditions. But at the present moment, there isn't enough data to support this. Do you agree? That's where we are aiming, right? We are aiming to use stem cells or the understanding of what stem cells are doing in the body. Maybe we can bypass transplantation in general, right? But at the end of the road, we want to improve patients' life. We want to improve the way that we age. We want to improve the way that we live, right? You know, can we live longer but also healthier life? at the end of the road. This is our goal. We really want to improve patients' life and, and human being quality of life, I guess. But we're not there yet. And rigorous science also requires the time to be able to do the right experiment in the right condition and make sure that you have all the controls, right? This is how we've learned how to do experiment. And we need to make sure that before we're getting into any human clinical trials that you know, we are on the safe track to do it. Mm. The sad thing, you know, for those kind of like going to Panama or going to Europe or going to all kind of other places, the sad place that I see it is that they're taking advantage of how, for example, parents for a kid that has been diagnosed with autism, how desperate they are to help the kid, obviously. And, and they're using this to take their money for something that there are no really base from this. I mean, look at papers, look at, you know, scientific evidence. Is it helping and how much is it helping? Is it something that, you know, the risks are actually, you know, worth taking? And there's no information about it. And it's obviously not being communicated well with, uh, with the patients and their parents. And, and I just find it very sad that we're not doing enough to prevent that, to, to make better regulation for that and maybe to advance it faster, right? You know, we want to make sure that it's the right thing to do at the right place. But communication is a key and we, we're still behind in communicating it. But I think for your question, that's the hope, right? Mm -hmm. We're hoping to live longer, healthier life and, and to maintain health at the end of the road right this is our goal we are not just studying stem cells you know for fun I mean it's really fun but <laughs> at the end of the road you know when I'm waking up in the morning with a very exciting result that I saw in the lab it's really because I think oh my god you know those stem cells actually doing what they supposed to do to regenerate an organ right you know how can we leverage that information for stem cell transplantation, for tissue regeneration for in, in culture and then transplantation how can we leverage that even the knowledge itself, not necessarily to transplant the cells, but actually use the same kind of mechanism that happens to improve our life, to prevent those stem cells to deteriorate with, with age, for example. Mm -hmm. So those are the questions that we're constantly asking ourselves, and this is what fuel my enthusiasm and I guess many other people in the field.
in your PhD, you studied hematopoietic stem cells, which are you know, leukocyte stem cells, white blood cells, stem cells, important for immunity. You then, in your postdoc, switched to epithelial stem cells. Do you still have an immunologist in you, or <laughs> are you are you more of a stem cell biologist? So I think I'm much more stem cell biologist. I think immunology is a, an important component in my education, understanding, and and how I'm thinking about biological problem in many ways, communication between cells, movement in within the tissue. I think one of the most beautiful things that we have in our hematopoietic system, the blood-forming kind of system in, in our bodies, that it's constantly moving, it's constantly dynamic. Um, as opposed to the epithelial tissue where the conception at least that it's more stable, it's not really moving a lot. What we are learning actually that that's not true. They're moving a lot. There's a lot of movements and, and dynamic, maybe not as much as in the hematopoietic field, but I think that type of understanding really helped me to understand, you know, or look at the stem cells. Can they actually move? They can really move. Can they create, for example, different ways of communication with their environment? So I think it's an important component in my understanding of how I look at stem cells and their communication with their environment. But yeah, I'm much more stem cell biologist, I think, in, in, in my core. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you still are interested in lymphatics. <laughs> still interested in lymphatics. So during my postdoc, and so I guess that will kind of cross a little bit of how I chose to move from the hematopoietic field to the epithelium and how to choose basically a postdoc lab. I think, you know, we talked about it before, but one of the things that I thought I have the strength in is that I discovered communication between the hematopoietic stem cell field with their vascular environment in the bone marrow. And so... Back then, it was a, a coagulation-based niche. Um, the stem cells needed to be hosted in an environment that is enriched with anticoagulant characteristics, and that was driven by the vascular system. And so this type of understanding really drives me, okay, do I want to stay within the same field or take my strength in understanding stem cell niche interaction to a different field? And that what I decided to do. Um, and we can talk about it later, a little bit more in depth of how to choose a postdoc lab, how to choose a subject, how to choose your strength, right? But this is what I've done. And I think that was the right decision for me. When I started my postdoc, I had a very concrete question that I wanted to ask. And that was about the vascular system, how the blood vessel look like around the epithelial stem cells. And I just vividly remember staining for the blood marker, CD31, for blood vascular system in the skin. And I saw a very, very clear vessel that is attached to the hair follicle stem cells, attached in a way of like really, really tight interaction. And I was sure it's a blood vessel. I was very excited. I found a, you know, blood vessels that are communicating with the epithelial stem cells, similarly to what I found in the bone marrow. But then a colleague of mine, and we'll talk a little bit about like how important it is that your colleagues and your environment is supportive and that you have the ability to communicate with them, ideas and to brainstorm with them. He looked at my data and he said, sure, these are not blood vessels. They're too irregular to be blood vessels. And I looked at him and said, no, 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 this is blood vessels for sure. And he said, 
no, 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 <laughs> these are not blood vessels. <laughs> Stain for, you know, other markers just to confirm your, um, your data. So I was like, okay, of course, I was so sure on my hypothesis that I was just stating for a bunch of markers. And obviously I was wrong. Um, and I, I just vividly remember myself sitting in front of the microscope, looking at the marker for lymphatic vascular system, live one. And it turns to be that lymphatic vessels are actually attached to the stem cells. Obviously, my hypothesis was wrong, and I needed to kind of switch completely my thinking around it. Why lymphatics? What, what are those lymphatic vessels? We always hear about the vascular system. We think about blood vessels. But all of a sudden, I found that it's lymphatic vessels that I knew nothing about, other than it's important for immunosurveillance, right? You know, immune cells that are capturing all of those bad stuff from the tissue will go through the lymphatic vessels and go to the lymph node to be educated. It's like the school for those immune cells to learn what are the bad stuff that we collected so the immune system will react against it. That's the only thing that I knew. Why would they be associated with stem cells all of a sudden? And that opened up a whole kind of research inquiry um, that was super, super exciting. But I think, you know, being open-minded for changing your hypothesis is something that we're having all the time in, in, in science. It's not always easy, but I was very firm that these are blood vessels and I it proved to be wrong. But being open that, oh, maybe it's actually an interesting stuff. And we discovered a completely new niche component for the hair follicle stem cells. And later on, we demonstrated that the lymphatic vascular system is actually important not only to grow hair and to maintain stemness identity for hair follicles. It was actually important throughout the epithelium, even in the intestine. And so what we found is actually that the rate of activation, the usage of those stem cells, really depend on lymphatic stem cell interaction. And my lab completely, you know, have centered around that type of communication in, in aging, in cancer, in tissue regeneration of wound response. We're finding very exciting new data. And so, you know, just a single kind of communication that I had with my colleague back then really triggers a lot of things that um, that's still ongoing. So it's very exciting. So what exactly the lymphatics are communicating to the hair follicle stem cell is still an area of active investigation. Still you just know there. that it's important. Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly what, what's being said back and forth. And I think it's a complex question because you mentioned, for example, immunosurveillance, right? You know, immune cells that are going through the lymphatic vessels that are being drained by the lymphatic vessels to go to the lymph node. So that's one thing that we know lymphatics are doing is that important for stem cell mm -hmm. regeneration and identity and maintenance and not to age, for example. We also know that lymphatics are draining fluids, macromolecules, all the things that are surrounding them, which we call the interstitium. How is that affecting stemness identity? And then there's the aspect of what are they secreting, for example? Are mm. they giving any goodies for the stem cells to do those type of things? And I think it's also context dependent, and this is what we're learning in the lab right now. It really depends on the context, on the tissue, the situation, right? If you are young or if you are aged stem cells, you will utilize those signaling very differently. And wounding will have a completely different outcome. And it's all very exciting to kind of learn how a single communication can be utilized differently. And there is the fourth aspect of it that 
we always think about cell-to-cell -cell communication, right? But vessels in general are a network, right? You know, you, mm -hmm. they create a network in our body. And so if one stem cell sends something in one, one place, those vessels go through the whole tissue and can synchronize behavior. Why is that important to synchronize stem cell behavior across the tissue is something that we're trying to understand from even evolutionary perspective right now. Hmm. And my mind is trying to come up with all sorts of hypotheses right <laughs> I now. I know. <laughs> it's fun. One thing I'm thinking is, like, what if those stem cells are just producing a bunch of waste? Why, why do they need a, a trash can right next to them, basically, to, to, to drain all that stuff away? Like, I wonder, do they make a lot of trash potentially toxic byproducts so we're looking at that as well right you know what are you producing and where is that going and why do you need to drain that kind of garbage faster around stem cells what happened when we age this garbage is mm -hmm. actually not good for you so we have some data around that that's centered around that right you know what are you producing how much you're producing and not necessarily what they're producing, but maybe, you know, you need to have a more sterile kind of environment around you, more clean environment around you to maintain your identity for a longer time point. We also learned that this communication needs to be dynamic because if you will keep the stem cell constantly in, in this bubble, right, they will not do what they're supposed to do. And we've learned that the stem cells themselves have kind of like a brain. They can kind of reshape their environment, including the lymphatic vascular system, to attach, not attach, depending on the regenerative demand. How this balance is actually happening, and those are the signaling that are being actually secreted by the stem cells themselves to reshape their vascular environment. Can we mimic that type of interaction by not doing actually stem cell transplantation, by expressing those factors that stem cells are secreting, which we call stem cell factors, basically, to induce tissue regeneration by simply reshaping their environment, making them believe that, oh, right now you're a young stem cells, you need to do exactly what you need to do. And we can do that uh, in the lab settings. But again, this is still in a lab setting. We can make an old mouse to grow hair. We can make an old mouse behave younger. Can we actually do it in human? We are still not there yet in terms of safety, in terms of controls, in terms of what are the outcome for a longer time point when we are doing it? Are we are not inducing cancer at one point? All of those questions are very, very important for us to understand the basic mechanisms of what is happening. And if we can use that, then we need to really make the right experiment, the right controls to take it to the next level and, and this is what we're doing and rigorous science takes time that's the hope but and rigorous money. time takes time and money <laughs> <laughs> so one of the main reasons we wanted to speak today was mm -hmm. talk to you a few times at recent events and you've mentioned having a lot of advice for picking a postdoc and i thought that would be very useful for our audience to to hear do you want to yeah, get into it? Yeah, yeah, of give course. Me your give me your TED talk <laughs> on picking a postdoc. I wish I had one, though. Um, so first and foremost, I think, you know, it's a complex question. And the answer, and I mean, again, if I, if I would give you, you know, one sentence is know yourself. And when I'm saying know yourself, it's basically to know what you want to do. 
what will make you happy? Know yourself means what are your goals, right? You know, so all of that will kind of go together. Okay, make a list of what you need, what you want, like the song. <laughs> you know, what I really need to be successful, to be happy, that my family will be happy, that all of that, you know, we talked about it also in choosing, you know, a place for a PI, right? You know, all of that is know yourself, what I need, what I want to be in the surrounding, what are my goals, my academic goals, my personal goals. So you will end up having that type of kind of a list, right? And and I think a lot of people that goes to kind of choose a lab, they get a lot of tips of choose a flashy lab, choose a big lab, choose a more sexy kind of subject to um, choose a technology, things like that. Not that it's not right, but I've seen a lot of people that go to that direction and can be successful and not successful, which means that there's no one size fits all. And it really means that you need to know yourself and you need to know what right for you to make it successful. Um, a lot of people saying don't stay in the same institution, for example, right? You know, which is generally true, but you need to know yourself. And if going into a different institution will make you unhappy, then it means that it's just not going to be a successful and, and, and a good experience for you. So for me, and again, I can give from my own experience, right? So um, the way that I'm answering that question, I guess, is that I'm dividing it to Let's start with a personal perspective, right? You know, what will make you happy? And then moving to the academic perspective of what do I want to do, right? Do I want to move field? Do I want to stay within the same field? So we'll talk about this a little bit. And then the goals, right? You know, so doing a postdoc usually related to if I want to be a PI at the end, if I want to lead my own lab. And, and that's always a hard question do I want to lead my own lab yes will I be successful in that I don't know right so you know the question that you actually need to ask yourself is not if I'm going to be good at this because nobody will I I don't know like you know nobody knows so it's worthless to even think about it in that way you need to think do I really want to do it and if the answer is yes then yes you need to do a postdoc right most of the program you know requires you to do a postdoc some are not but the majority of the programs do and i guess you know once you choose that then in part of your goals can also be to the industry right you know so there's the academia and there's the industry perspective so we can talk about that a little bit but let's talk i think let's start a little bit on the personal perspective of this because i'm a big believer that in order to be successful you and your dependent and family needs to be happy and when I moved from Israel to the United States, I had a few labs kind of like that I wanted to interview in um, and I needed to make a short list of what I want to do. And so I started with know yourself, right? Know what I want to do, know what is important for me to be happy. And so I already moved when I had a three-year-old toddler. Ella and um, and I knew that I want to expand my family at one point during my postdoc and it was important for me to have a place that will have a child care support for example and so places that had no child care support in the vicinity I was okay that's not going to happen I cannot afford whatever it is for daycare for two kids at one point it's not just not going to happen so 
that was something that is important for me from, you know, very hardcore kind of, you know, this is what I can afford. This is my salary. This is what I can do. And I'm not going to get my family and my, you know, surround me and be miserable because I want to study in this particular institution. So that was important for me and kind of, I, if I want to be happy, if my family needs to be happy, I need to have that type of support. I need to have a good education around me. I need to have work perspective for my husband because he needs to be happy too at the end of the road. It needs to be a place that, you know, we can have some social life, for example. So very far away from our family will probably be more hard to kind of navigate through that. And that kind of really helped me to first map what are the places that I want to be in. Okay, so know yourself really means, okay, these are the places that I think family perspective, personal perspective will make me feel happy in this place. And then we're moving kind of, you know, from the personal perspective of know yourself to the academic perspective of know yourself. And from the academic perspective, I knew that I want to do stem cells, right? You know, so stem cells, it's very broad field, right? You know, you can do embryonic stem cells, you can do induced stem cells, you can do adult stem cells, you can do even, you know, from evolutionary perspective, you can work on animals that regenerate a whole organ, a whole limb, for example, as we started this talk today. So what exactly do I want to do? What are my strengths from my PhD that I can take to the next level? My recommendation, I guess, or tip maybe would be how can you take what you've learned so far to a completely new field? I really like to see multidisciplinary science, and I think this is where we are making the biggest breakthrough, right? You know, when you're taking knowledge from one field to another, because biology is all combined. It's not only immunology, it's not only vascular system, it's not only stem cells. There, nobody's working in a void in our body, and I think combining that as a multidisciplinary science. Right now, I'm like even thinking about how can we combine biology with physics, for example, right? You know, we're always thinking about the biology, but there's a lot of physics and forces that are taking place in our body as well. So combining your strength to a new field not only will allow you to open a new inquiry in the new lab that you're going, but will actually allows you to take that with you to the next stage for you as a PI, right? So if you're doing exactly the same thing as your PI, then taking it to your own lab will actually be hard. But if you brought something with you, you open a whole new kind of field in, 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 in a lab that you worked in, you can much, much easier. It's going to be so much easier for you to take it with you and open your own lab based on that. So it's sometimes hard to find it, right? You know, what are your strengths? I'm going to use you as an, as an example because good, you good. mentioned that fibroblasts are your center of your universe. How can you take what you've learned on fibroblasts and the communication between them and the immune system to a whole new kind of system that you can take it and then you can always go back to whatever you feel, you know, you always need to be excited about what you're doing. You can learn everything. You can learn every technique. You can learn, you really, you can learn everything. Nobody can teach you enthusiasm. That's something internal. This kind of internal fire is within you. So you need to find, okay, this is what I'm excited about and, and I want to learn. 
so this is what I've done basically, kind of like thinking of how I can take what I've learned so far from a technology perspective, from knowledge perspective to a completely new field. And maybe also if, you know, it will turn out that I want a BPI at the end, I can take it with me. So this is from the kind of academic point of view. Before moving to the goals, right, you know, so know yourself and you need to think about what is important for you when you are in a lab. For me, it was important to have great colleagues around me and a great support system around me because science for me, and usually my hypotheses are wrong. <laughs> it's, it's a, you know, things that I've seen, you know, throughout my studies, I'm thinking about something, biology give me something else, and I need to completely change my way of thinking around it, which is very fun. But I also need a system surrounding me to tell me, oh, it's not just a fail experiment or if it is a failed experiment, to communicate it with my colleagues around me. I, I need people to talk with about my science. Being in an isolated environment will not be good for me, for my scientific curiosity, for the fun part of science. I really need people that around me to talk about my results and about their results. Brainstorming is something that I'm really, really enjoying doing. So when I interviewed, I tested that as well. Can I actually talk with them about their science in a fun way? Can I talk with them about my ideas in a fun way? Can we actually brainstorm and the environment foster that type of the behavior of sitting together and talking and, and having that type of communication? To me, it was less important to have a day-to-day -day mentorship, for example. I want to be more hands-off lab. I knew that I'm very independent, but I wanted to have someone that I can talk with when I needed to. So I, when I interviewed, I also kind of test that, right? You know, how the PI in the lab want to communicate with me. Is it a day-to-day -day basis, micromanagement, or do your stuff, let's talk once a week, let's talk once a month, things like that. What best works for me? Again, know yourself. It's kind of after a PhD, you can already see a one yeah day-to-day -day communication is not something that i enjoy doing for example so all of this kind of goes together to know yourself right and i think you know looking at the environment that i was in i was you know when you're interviewing it's not only that they are interviewing you you interview them are they happy do they look happy do they look you know satisfied um funding is also important aspect are people here getting funding because you need you know to be in a lab that will support you even when your funding is over and again having you know the the need to move with my family and with my kid I can't just one day say oh funding is over I need to go back right you know I needed a place that I know that I can constantly submit for grants and 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 get support from my PI in terms of those great grants and it's important to communicate that also with your PI feel comfortable of doing it and to me, you know, choosing that type of lab, it was, you know, seeing how that type of communication was easy with my PI really helped me to settle on that type of environment I want to be in. What type of technologies do I want to learn? Do I want to take with me? You know, in my PhD, I was... I learned so many techniques on in vivo, working with animal models, working with uh, flow cytometry, with immunohistochemistry. I've learned so many techniques on that, but I 
wanted to take it to the next level of genomics and understanding chromatin dynamics and understanding how the stem cells within their genome kind of responding to those stimuli that they're getting from their environment. So it was important for me to choose a lab that not necessarily have that type of technology, but enables me to do that. So know yourself in that terms of what you want to master in. Do I want to be more on the computational part? Do I want to learn more biochemistry? Do I want to learn more drug development? Things like that, that kind of help, can help you to narrow down your options more and more. What else in terms of, yeah, the systems, I guess, you know, um, we talked about stem cells in many types of organs and system. You can learn them in organoids in culture. You can learn them on mice. You can learn them also in, in other type of uh, animals, right? Which type of model do I want to master in and learn more? And, and that will be important because that will be the system that you will take with you. Usually, uh, one of the things that I really wanted to do is the flatworm and zebrafish that I think phenomenal system to to learn stem cells and their behavior with their environment so i also like looked a lot on labs around the center around that model too because um i thought it's it's absolutely amazing model to study stem cells and allows me to do so much more than i can do in in mice for example at the end of the road i chose mice and I think that also get to the point of there's no one size that fit all and there's no perfect place and the perfect place will be your lab at the end. But you need to kind of take all of that into consideration at the end of the road to to find the right place for you. You know, when I started all of that, I was like, know yourself because it really need to fit you, your needs, who you are. And then there is the last subject of this and this is your goals, right? So. When I started my postdoc, do I want to be a PI? Yes. Am I going to be successful as a PI? I don't know. And I decided that I'm going to focus on what I want, what my goal, not if I'm good at, if I'm not good at, I think, you know, those are questions that nobody can answer. And it's just a waste of time thinking about it in that way. So what do I want? What are my goals? Let's make like a list of goals. Where do I see myself in the next five, six years? And that can change, right? You know, it can change, but I think, you know, making that type of kind of goals is important for us to choose the next step. So I wanted to be a PI. Um, I know that a lot of other people around me wanted to go to the industry and they still chose to do a postdoc. I think I can less comment about the transition from a postdoc to the industry, but I think, you know, from a recruitment point of view, if you want to be in a leadership positions, um, I've seen uh, that recruitment is much more going towards people that actually did a postdoc. But I, I, I think I can comment less about that than on the academic path because obviously this is what I chose at the end. But making those goals is important because I think, you know, going towards your goals and thinking about it when failures are happening, when, you know, there are so many setbacks on experiments, on life, on, you know, things that need to change in how you balance your life around your research. Having a goal in mind is really important to keep us kind of on track and keep our surroundings supporting us. It's a very, very long answer, I know, <laughs> um, but I put it in under kind of the personal perspective towards the academic perspective and then later on what are your goals 
and all of that should really help you to find the right package for yourself and to know that there are no perfect place but the best place that you can find did you follow your own advice when you were going through this process or has this changed subsequent to you finishing your postdoc and now being an assistant professor so I think it changed throughout my career choices. I, I don't know if I mentioned it to you before, but um, so in Israel, you need to do an undergrad. You need to have a master's degree before moving to a PhD, as opposed to here in the U.S. Um, so I had to do a master, and you know, back then I haven't read any of those kind of how to choose a lab, how to know yourself, right? I wanted to study cancer, and this is what I wanted. I didn't think about the environment. I didn't think about what will make me actually happy. And I chose a lab that studied cancer, but that was not a successful experience for me. And it actually made me feel, I, I don't want to stay in the academia. This is not the right place for me. This is not where I'm happy. And I went to the industry uh, for one year. And seeing, I guess, you know, these two these two worlds, I would say, of how they're approaching scientific question, I think I was more towards, okay, I do want to go back to the academia to ask those fundamental questions, have the freedom to ask that type of questions, but I need to do it right this time. And I think this is where I started to question more about what is the right choice for me. And throughout this process, I talked with someone um, at the Weizmann Institute, um, Dr. Maya Schuldiner. She's one of the most amazing person that I know. And really, I don't think she knows it even, but how much she helped me to kind of go through that process in my head of what is the right choice for me. Because it needs to be for me, not for anyone else, right? For someone next to me, this lab will be perfect. But for me, it's not going to be the perfect match. So I think it's it's an evolution where I'm right now in the part that I think from my postdoc, I really made the right decision for me. It was the most happy place for me and the colleagues that were around me, it was, it was just an amazing experience. Advocating for postdoc, you just need to do it because it's so much fun, you know? So it was the right choice for me. So I think I followed that advice for my postdoc. I definitely did not do it throughout earlier on and I've made mistakes early on and we're learning from our mistakes and getting that type of supportive system around you and having amazing people around you I chose Maya because I felt okay I can talk with her I can learn from her and having a mentor that is not necessarily your official mentor is is important to to go through those phases and and Maya just did it for me without even knowing that I think she just open my mind to think about what you want what is good for you um, make that list and you know throughout talking with her and understanding the process I knew that I want to study cancer I want to cure cancer at the end of the road but I need to learn much more before I'm going there and you know right now in the lab we are studying cancer but I've been through a lot a lot of stages to understand what is for me the most fundamental question in cancer biology that I want to understand. And being in the academia actually gave me the freedom to do that and, and ask bold questions that maybe hasn't been addressed before. When you were picking your postdoc, you just went through, was it seven criteria, place, person, science, family, yeah. all those criteria. 
at the end of the day, how many places or, or labs were there that satisfied all of those That's for you? Great question. I think I ended up having three labs. So I, I didn't interview in lots of places because of all of that, I guess. You know, I I had a list of, I think, maybe 10 labs that I want to go to, that I want to approach, that I want to write to. But having that type of list, okay, my husband cannot work there, not happening. Daycare doesn't exist, not happening, things like that. And I narrowed it down to three labs that I actually wrote Obviously, we can also talk a lot about how to approach a lab, how to talk about, you know, how to, to do all of that, right? But I wrote to three different labs, different PIs. I got response from all three of them, and I interviewed in all three of them. Um, and at the end of the road, I got to the point that I have two that I really, really want to do, and I don't think they're, they're right and wrong there. I think if I would choose each and every one of them, I would have been happy. But at the end of the day, it needed to be one lab, right? So I chose a lab that was really, I think, you know, more on on terms of, okay, my husband, for example, will have more work perspective here, not necessarily from the science perspective. But at the end of the day, it wasn't like a lot of labs that met that type of criteria. But I, I think I was fortunate to have reply from all three. I think I was also persistent because I went to scientific conferences to meet those people so they knew me before. I knew the field well. I I kind of talked with other people that knew those PIs and kind of even sometimes introduced me to. So when you have someone to introduce you, it's much easier to even kind of get an interview, I guess. I think, you know, knowing what I want and do it much in advance, like, right, when you go to conferences and you have the ability to to talk with people, to um, to communicate, then that's a key to, at the end of the day, kind of having the people to introduce you or to know them before you even approach them. So all of my emails were like, it was so great to see you at that meeting and, and to present you my data, the discussion with you, whatever was um, really fun and, and stimulating. So things like that, that they can, oh, this is the person that I talk with. And they were not from my field, right? So usually the meetings that I would go to is not like center around vascular system or hematopoietic system. It was very kind of broad, I guess, meeting. So it allowed me to kind of talk with other people from the field. So I think that was actually really important throughout the process. Was there any consideration of staying in your PhD lab? So I actually stayed for an extra year to finish my paper after my PhD. So I graduated and then I stayed for another year that officially I think considered to be a postdoc, but for me it was basically just to finish the paper. I think, you know, publish a good paper takes time. So these are things that people need to think about when they're graduating. That Usually from the time that you're submitting the paper, unless you're very, very lucky, it takes about a year until you publish it. Um, so I stayed another year in the lab that I've done, my PhD. But I think during that year, I was searching for postdoc. So I was, again, on the market, let's say so, at the year that I was under revision, not after the paper was published already. Yeah, so I guess to the question, if I ever consider staying, I think, you know, everyone is saying that it's not it's not a good practice to stay in the same institution, the same lab. Whether I agree with it or not is not the question because you know there's kind of like a concept in science that you need to move or 
get out of your comfort zone to be successful. A lot of time, it's a lot of also financial burden out of it, right? To move your house, to move your family, to move Because your move school. was very far, right? It from, was from, very from far. From All of the money that City. I had was out <laughs> for that. Like, I was like, this is the money that I have. This is all going to that. Well, hopefully, it will pay out at the end. It did, but... You know, it's you don't know it in advance. You're like, this is the money that I have right now in the bank, and all of that is going for the move. <laughs> it's a lot. It's it's financial burden. I think you know, as an international student, also thinking about work authorization for your spouse or dependent is not always immediate, right? There are like three or four months that they don't even have work authorization. So you need to know that the money that you have can sustain and again I was very lucky to have another fellowship women in science from the Weizmann Institute and Refson Foundation that really helped me throughout that process because it was really really hard at the beginning and I guess you know it's so again if I agree with that or not it's not the question but right now it's the concept that really you need to move out of your comfort zone to show that you are successful in other places in other environments that you don't know necessarily because that's the criteria I guess to evaluate you if you are successful I do not necessarily agree with that mm -hmm. but it is what it is right now and I think hopefully it will change the way that I would evaluate I think people that stayed in the same institution will not be the same as other people maybe but I will evaluate them not necessarily if they were able to move from a different you know places I do want to see that they can change their way of thinking that they you know that their brain is dynamic not necessarily the place that they live in right but to your question I didn't think that I can stay in my own institution if my goal was to become a PI if I want to be a PI, I cannot stay in my same institution, and I can't even stay in the same country. Wow. I need to move to a different country if I want to be a PI. And so once I've made that decision, it was very clear that I need to move either to Europe or to the U.S. To do that, this is what I need to do in the process. So I haven't even thought to stay if this is my goal. I do hope, though, you know, that people with, you know, families in the future will not need to even think about it. If they need to stay in the same place or not, as long as their, I think, you know, creativity and their scientific thinking is dynamic and interesting and provocative and, and, and important. This is what I want to see, right, you know, in, in future scientists. But that's me. But right now, I think this, you know, these are criteria. You do see a lot of people, and I think you interviewed one of them in one of your postdocs also that stayed in the same institution and was very, very successful. So you can see those type of, you know, scientists that do that. But I think right He also recommended against doing against it. Against doing it. Because at the end of the road, you will want to get a PI position. If you want to stay in the same institution, for example, then your leverage to get a startup package and to get, you know, all the benefits and all of that will be very, very limited. Again, it's not the question if I agree with that or not. It's this is how the system is right now. Hopefully we all as a future scientist can change it. But right now I would, I guess, also advise against staying in the same institution and try to move and show that you are also dynamic. And, you know, I'm always thinking about it from a stem cell perspective, right? You know, when a stem cell get out of their comfort zone, they differentiate, right? They learn new things. Just be a stem cell. <laughs> Just be a stem, be a stem cell. cell. <laughs> <laughs> and you can be dynamic. You can be plastic. <laughs> Shifting back to the science a bit, 
I'm going to share a link to your website, but I, I urge the listeners to, to definitely check out your website to see the pretty pictures on there because you have some really awesome microscopy images, mm. immunofluorescent microscopy mostly. And I want to know why you're using microscopy. What are the disadvantages of microscopy? I love microscopy in that it always looks super cool. The problem is whenever I use it i never can believe it <laughs> so i'm wondering how do you how are you comfortable with doing so much microscopy let's talk about I love this question yeah let's talk about i love this question i think you know thinking about it from two different perspectives right how do i believe it and why do i why am i using microscopy so much know yourself again right you know so for me seeing is believing so i'm, vis I'm very visual person um, one of my hobbies is photography right and I really like to visualize things I mean I think there's a lot of art in biology that you know I'm seeing things that are actually happening inside of our body how cells communicate and seeing that is something that again I find very exciting and stimulating but there's a lot of disadvantages also in microscopy and as long as you know that and you know how to kind of overcome them then I think you, you start to feel more and more comfortable with microscopy. The main disadvantage that I found back then is that I see everything in two dimension, right? You know, when you're taking a tissue, you slice it, you see everything in two dimension, X and Y axis, basically. And thinking about the vascular system and I was thinking about it as a network. If I'm cutting it to a two dimension, I can't see a network. I can't see communication. I'm very, very limited. And as a person that wants to see, and how is that happening? I couldn't see how is that happening. So I had to kind of take concept from tissue clearing. I understood that I, I cannot do sections anymore. I need to see the X, Y, and Z axis. I need to see it in three dimension. Um, nowadays, we are also looking at this with a fourth dimension of live imaging in 3D construction. So doing that and taking the tissue, okay, I cannot section it right now. I need to make it completely clear, but preserve the tissue integrity. And so I worked along to kind of optimize a clearing technique that is good for the skin. The skin is very condensed tissue. It's very hard tissue. Clearing it, it's not an easy task. Clearing it means getting uh, rid of all of the extracellular components so clearing it meaning that usually all of our tissues are basically opaque right and the reason that they are so opaque is that we have water droplets inside and so all of those water droplets are basically causing light reflection and so what we are doing in tissue clearing we dehydrate the tissue and replace those water droplets with oil, or in, in my case, it's cinnamon oil that everyone can find. Cinnamon in, oil. Cinnamon oil that you can Must find in the great. kitchen. Our <laughs> microscope room is always like a kitchen. The problem is that then every cinnamon kind of flavor will be like, oh, that smells like work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it's basically just a cinnamon oil because the refraction index, the, the kind of optic characteristic of it, allows me to look under the microscope and don't have a lot of light reflection. So it's basically almost a complete kind of moving from the objective of the microscope to my sample. And so while we're replacing those kind of water droplets with the oil, you can get completely cleared system. 
always in my presentation, I kind of like to bring kind of different perspective to things, right? You know, so if you look at a person that juggle balls, but take the camera from up, from up there, you basically will see just balls moving in a two dimension, not as if they're going up and down. So you have to see, you know, different perspective of different angles to the same kind of tissue in order to be comfortable with microscopy. And I think that was what allows us to do the big breakthrough of understanding that how vessels are interacting with stem cells in the skin. But also that has a lot of disadvantages, right? Because we're seeing a snapshot of it. Most of our science is actually a snapshot in thinking about it, you know, seeing something that is actually moving and dynamic. Right now we are focusing a lot about live imaging, for example, to see how things are actually happening, how those communications are happening in the tissue. So we have to back it up with functional data. We have to back it up with a lot of controls. And if we saw something, can we manipulate that and see what the consequence of that. We're going to get really, really technical right now. What kind of controls do you use? I come from, like you said for yourself, flow cytometry background. Yeah. You know, you have like tons of fluorophores in there all at once. You do your fluorescent minus one FMO controls, you know, to correct for any of that fluorescent overlap. Mm -hmm. People used to use isotype controls a bit, and then they <laughs> kind of fell out of favor because the isotype doesn't necessarily have the same amount of fluorophores per yeah. molecule as the actual antibody you're using. But, you know, you have your biological control, like stimulated, unstimulated. You can look at your internal negative control, right? Does the cell type that you know shouldn't express that marker exactly. still not express that marker? What kind of controls do you use on a routine basis? Very, very similar, right? You know, so we can put secondary control only to see that we are actually not seeing something like that only is... only your secondary antibody. Only your secondary antibody to make sure that what you see is basically true, right? You know, driven by your epitope. You know, what is the cell type that you wanted to detect? But also that is not sufficient, right? Because sometimes the cell of the type that you want to do, right? You know, you're using an epitope and there are a lot of kind of non-specific interaction. How do I control for that, for example, right? So we have the ability to knock out, knock down a protein, for example, to make sure that my antibody is actually specific to the epitope that I'm using. And all of that needs to be in three dimension, right? Because with clearing and everything, there can be different fluorescence that can be kind of enhanced and not enhanced. So all of that needs to be happening. If we see something that is unexpected, I have to have all of those control in place. Even if I'm looking, for example, on DNA damage, right? You know, if I don't see anything, is it true or not true, right? You know, so I have to stimulate it with a positive control, but biological positive control. Let's put irradiation to see that it's actually inducing DNA damage. And does the DNA damage actually happening in the cell that I would expect them to be? So it's not only a technical controls that you need to do, but also biological controls of positive and negative controls that you would expect them to be especially for new things, for a new kind of phenotype that we see. We have a lot of kind of thinking about, you know, what are the stem cells moving through to lymphatics and, and we see some type of kind of cellular interaction and to verify that this is actually true, we are doing lots of controls because we're basing a lot of our observation by the microscope and, and we want to make sure that what we're seeing is actually true. Is it immune cells maybe? Maybe, you know, it's other cell type that create those type of interaction. 
So it's not only biological thing, we also like add another layer of control of let's take it to the next level of, and thinking about maybe it's another cell type even that can control that type of behavior. Having said that, I think there's always tons of other controls and I don't want to be drowned by controls, right? You know, you want to actually do meaningful things. So I think there is a balance like everything in life. And I want to believe that together with the technical controls, with the biological controls and with functional data that we're combining all of that together that kind of give us the full picture of what is happening. I think scientists needs to also be open-minded for, you know, we've talked about, you know, hypotheses that sometimes turns to be wrong. We also need to be open-minded for if we forgot a control that gave us something to be also open-minded to back up from whatever we thought it is and say, okay, what is actually the real thing that happening but I do want to believe that we are careful enough and rigorous enough to think thoroughly about which controls needs to be done in order to make a solid conclusion mm -hmm. yeah I, I kind of come at it from experimentally with my studies the reverse approach I do all of this flusitometry functional yeah. stuff and then I back it up with a microscopy but you're microscopy first and, and then, then functional data yeah. and i think the main thing that i always struggle with like when i'm looking at microscopy stuff is even with all of those controls i still wonder sometimes like is that non-specific staining or is that specific <laughs> uh, I and i i don't I haven't done any tissue clearing but my brief google search told me that one advantage of doing that is it, it reduces the non-specific staining by a lot which you know in the skin there, there could be a lot of right that's true we see a lot i mean i think when i first introduced it in my lab people were very kind of with all the autofluorescence that we're doing that we see in the skin there's no way they will work but actually lots of antibodies to give a lot of autofluorescence and tissue clearing you don't we, we see none even without blocking so again technical kind of but even without blocking those non-specific interactions but I think it's also epitope dependent and, you know, with experience and, you know, more and more of what to do and what not to do and how to tweak the protocol to fit the antibody that you are using. And as long as you're careful and back up your data with functional data, and this is something that we are always doing in the lab and, and doing all the right controls, you know, staining controls at least, I think you should be on the right side. To me right now, you know, after doing sections to tissue clearing, three dimension, right now I'm seeing something and I'm like, is it true because it's dynamic or is it constant? And so this is the way when we're moving to the next level and I want to see it actually happening. I want to see, you know, dynamic movement within the tissue. When you actually see it, it's, I think it's hard to not believe what you see. We're also using a lot of constructs that are fluorescently, basically within the mice. We're using a lot of transgenic animals. So um, for live imaging, you don't, you're not using any antibodies. So there's no specific, non-specific, right? You know, when you're using those transgenic models, and you see that it's happening. So you back up your observation in so many ways. And now you're adding a new dimension to this, which is very, very exciting. It's really super exciting. Do, do you <laughs> have, I assume, for most of your routine work, confocal yeah. microscope and then for the in vivo imaging, like two photon? 
So we're actually using spinning disk for everything, okay. and it's good enough for us to visualize all of that. So spinning disk microscopy is good. I think, again, two photon gives you other advantages, how deep you can penetrate into the tissue. The advantage of the skin, right, at your least. Hair follicles, yeah, exactly. Cell, right? So pretty shallow. Shallow. I think also in the intestine, if you know how to expose it in the right way, it's still considered quite shallow. Other tissues needs more deep kind of imaging, and so two photon really allows you to do it. So you need to know your system to use the right technology to, to do what you need to do. Right now, it's more than enough for us to use the spinning disk for that. Do you have one in your lab? So part of my recruitment here was that I need to have a spinning disk. Wow. <laughs> if I want to do what I need to do, well, we need to have a spinning disk here. And we brought basically the spinning disk here to the Sanford Consortium. It's part of the core facility here. My lab is using it basically constantly, um, and it's kind of halfway mine to use. Again, and the advantage of being in... in, in such a great community is that you can bring something a technology that you know how to use very well to the scientific community here that are all stem cell based and it's so heavily used right now in the building and i'm so happy to see that people are using it to answer scientific questions which is really exciting gonna shift again going back <laughs> and forth this is what happens when i have too much coffee <laughs> always science has a lot of failures. Oh, yeah. All the experiments, you know, the hypotheses. In terms of your science or your career, they told me a little bit about one, I guess, already, a failure, failed hypothesis with the, the, the blood vessels and yeah. the epithelial stem cells. But I'm wondering, is there like another failure <laughs> that, that has happened in your life that has worked out for the best like looking back you're like oh i'm really glad i messed that up or that didn't go how i planned <laughs> in retrospect i think every failure is kind of good right at the end of the road it made us kind of grow um so when i'm talking with people about failures i mean i think people kind of like get it to it's not going through really well so i think let's talk about it in a different lens under the different lens let's talk about it in terms of resilience because as you said, there are a lot of setbacks, right? And there will constantly be setbacks. You submit a grant and you're not getting it. It's a huge setback, right? You know, you're like, what I've done wrong? What is, you know? And I think as scientists, we've been educated, I think, to beat ourselves up so much to be better. And... I want us to be more compassionate about ourselves, more resilient about ourselves and they, you know, get to the point that this is part of the job. This is part of how we grow and um, and be more compassionate about ourselves that, you know, for the next round. So not every failure is like, you know, turned out to be, oh, amazing. My hypothesis is right. You know, it's, you know, driving a completely new kind of, field into the stem cell field right you know so not everything is like that but having a supportive system around you as i mentioned choose a lab you know that colleagues around you or you know can support you in those type of you know setbacks i had many experience experiments that you know tubes just fell to the ground after like three months of experiments right it happens you know it, i see your face you see it's like you know you all tweak um and it happens, and there's no good at that, right? And what have I learned to be more stable with my hands? <laughs> I haven't learned a lot from it. So, you know, setbacks will happen. It will drive you back three months kind of backward, right? You know, 
the only thing that maybe you can learn about, you know, collect more samples throughout the time. So if something fell, you can still have something else. Things like that. Uh, but I think having a supportive system around you is a key. And to stop beat ourselves up because it will happen all the time. And, and be more compassionate about ourselves. That and it's easy to said than done. Again, getting mentor colleagues around you that supports you. I think when I first submitted my paper, it was a year for vision in a very prestigious journal. One reviewer didn't like the paper in the second round. He just said that he's not willing to review it again. And the paper was rejected after one year for vision. You can imagine how hard it is for a postdoc that my goal was to be a PI at the end. And this is what I've worked so hard for. One reviewer decided that it's not good enough. And I sat with the person... Um, her name was Yael, and she's a PI in Slot Catherine. And I just sat with her, and again, having you know that supportive community, and I was like, "What am I doing? I'm not going to be successful in this." And she basically, you know, just <laughs> reminded me a video from um, it's a it's a Sesame Street cartoon of a, you know I don't know if it was a Cookie Monster or whatever <laughs> wants to go a place, and he said. I want to be there and he's going there and whoever was there said no you're not there you're here I said no but I want to be there so he's going there to the other place and the person that was there said no you're not there you're here we always want to be there we forget that there is a road there and if I will constantly be I want to be there I want to be there without thinking that I need to enjoy the road I'll be miserable and so I completely changed my perspective of thinking okay it's going to end up published wherever it's going to be published. I'll work very, very hard to make it the best that I can do. I can control others, right? I can control the reviewer. I can control anything else. What I can control is how I'm taking the road, how I'm enjoying it. That moment, I just booked basically a one-week vacation for me and my family, no matter what. I know that I'm in the middle of revision, but I need it for my mental health, for my kind of enjoying the road. And I came back so much more fresh. Okay, let's go for the next journal. And we've done it. It could have ended up in another journal too, right? You know, that's, that's the way that signs go. But I think, you know, having my perspective about it differently, I want to enjoy the road with those setbacks. I need to have my supportive system around me really help me to kind of go through that. Otherwise, I think I would be like so miserable and thinking I just want to be there all the time. And then you get there and then what, right? You know, what's the next, I want to be there. So really enjoying the road helps you, I think, change your perspective about so many of those setbacks around the, the way and thinking about it from not necessarily failures, because again, we've been educated to beat ourselves up for each and every one of those. But rather than, okay, resilience, let's enjoy it. Okay, my chip just fell down, my experiment is dead today. I need to do something else to kind of, I don't know, let's run around Central Park today to <laughs> get my head around it. We just need to take care of ourselves so much better, I think, in that respect. <laughs> I want to do a round of <laughs> rapid fire questions. Yay. I've never so done the rapid fire questions oh before. Oh, no, I'm the guinea pig. Yeah, you're the Shoot. guinea pig. I think you can handle it. <laughs> what do you like best, big lab or small lab? Medium lab. <laughs> There's no <laughs> okay. big labs. Most important quality to have as a scientist can't say curiosity. Resilience. 
digital lab notebook or handwritten lab notebook? I'm always both, but digital. Digital. Yeah. You're, what do you mean always both? Um, in my lab, hybrid people. We're hybrid. Both. Yeah. I mean, everything is digital, but me as you know, a scientist, I always need to have both because my brain is always thinking as I'm doing as I'm doing things. Things are changing as we do experiment. I've put I don't know three microliter instead of one. I need to write it down immediately. So I'm always both. But I have to have digital. Right now, all of my lab is digital. Like I, it has to be there. <laughs> Even for the trainees, what if they Everything. prefer handwritten? They can prefer. I mean, I'm actually encouraging to have a handwritten. But everything needs to then go into the notebook. All of your notes, all of your what you've done in protocol concentration. Age of mice, what was happening during that experiment, everything goes digital right now. And I think it's important for our reporting at the end of the road, but it's also helping, I think, people even plan their experiments in the right way. Because when we go through those experiments, I'm like, where are the controls? Oh, that's true. We don't have good. I think when you're planning and thinking about it, when you write things down, it's so much easier to plan it in the right way. So everything is digital. But I, I know I said rapid fire, but we're going to dig into this one a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> what does the digital lab notebook look like for you? Is it just a, a Word document? Is there a specific tool you so use we're using? Lab? We're using Benchling notebook. Mm-hmm. So it helps us just to have those folders for experiments. So it's kind of organized in a nice way. I think it's good enough for what we need right now. We're doing a lot of cloning, so it's kind of easy to navigate between that. So we are using Benchlink for that. And the information that I require, at least from my trainee to have there, is every experiment needs to have a goal. We need to have hypothesis because I'm a person that I'm a hypothesis driven. We're not doing experiments just because oh, I'm interested to see that. You know, I need to have something in mind while you're doing it. And everything planned. So which animals you're using or which in vitro system you're using, which, which controls you're having there, what are your controls? You're actually listing your controls. And then staining, because we're doing a lot of kind of immunofluorescence, of course. I want to see that all of those controls also exist there. And at the end of the those kind of protocol, we have notes and results. Some staining didn't work, or if I change something, or if I put three microliter instead of one, things like that. You know, everything can be noted there. So that's kind of like a perfect like experimental plan that is existing there. I think it initiated, I th- thought about it, like started when I did my PhD, my PI back then asked me to submit actually in a Word document, an experimental plan before every experiment. And that was very hard and very tedious. And I felt that I'm just copying paste from like, you know, other experiment at the end of the road, I'm doing something completely different. It wasn't very successful kind of way for me doing it but I think the idea behind it was actually led me to think about what I want to do do I have everything that I need for that experiment do I have all the controls that I need do I need to ask for help from other people or the mating I need more mice actually to have a powerful experiment here right now I can use four mice right now I need more it won't be as powerful so the idea behind it was actually very, very smart. And without being even asked on my postdoc, I actually started to do it for myself. And I found it so much helpful. And so we initiated it here in the lab. And I'm just running like, you know, survey in the lab of thinking about, you know, how this is working for you. How And people are so happy with this because 
it's not like it needs to be perfect, but it needs to be planned. And as long as they're planning it and we're sitting together about this plan, they're actually like, oh, right. Like we haven't thought about that, for example. And so we're actually like saving, you know, animals, life, reagents and, you know, a lot of things by just thinking about it in advance, which you can find whatever construction for it. Some people can think about it. it's killing my kind of curiosity or, you know, I want to do something new or something like that. I think we need to find it in, in ways of doing something cool, but still plan it because to me, planning and having the controls, because if you haven't done the control, I can't take anything out of this experiment. I've seen it like in my lab and with my trainees, right? You know, they really want to do this, but if you haven't done the right control, how do I know that this is a stem cell work or other cell work, for example, I want to have, you know, the right experiment being planned so I can get a meaningful conclusion out of it. And when you do it right, you can actually have conclusion out of your experiments, which is not always, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at least you're increasing your chances of getting meaningful conclusion out of your experiment. The goal is to, to learn something from every experiment and to be able to go back in time and figure out what someone did, right? <laughs> as long as you're doing those things. But I'm even looking at my own notes, right? You know, um, this antibody didn't work, for example, or something, this clone didn't work. And now in my lab, for example, someone wanted to stain for the same epitope. And I was like, oh, just a second. I know the one epitope didn't work for me. But I actually noted it, you know, in my notebook. And we went back and said, oh, this doesn't work. Don't order this one. Order in the next one. The next one didn't work either. But at least, you know, we had the third option working. And I guess having those kind of you know you've learned something new then and i think for me it's again just the planning of it and thinking about it even if you won't do exactly the same thing that is written in the protocol and you can note it then later on it makes you think and this is what i want my training to do right you know i just want them to think about their experiment and is that the right setup that i want to do that type of you know to answer my question if it needs to be digital or not digital, I think, you know, we are moving more and more towards like, you know, having everything documented. I think there are disadvantages and advantages of doing both. As I mentioned, I'm a person that always have both because it's easier for me to plan by hand and then put it on writing. But as long as you have something, I guess that's the goal. And for me as a PI, it's just easier for me to go over like people are planning it and they, they shoot me an email like she look at experiment number 74 for example mm -hmm. and I can just look at this and made comment like you know in I don't like red blue <laughs> um, you know take a look at this and this and this um, so it's easier kind of like with communication wise you don't have to worry about handwriting to oh no 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 not at all not at all as I said it's not supposed to be perfect in it's not a publishing you know it's but it needs to be planned and and even I can be, you know, when I'm thinking about experiment, I can talk with them. Oh, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do that. But then they actually tell me, oh, but sure, you don't have the, you know, wild type control, for example, for this experiment. So we need to think about it in other way, in other settings. So once you put it in writing and how many mice you need to do, what settings you need to do, then, okay, it's easier to think about it in a different way. I think we're getting pretty close to... Both of us having our next our next uh, meeting. next meeting. <laughs> I wanted to just ask you if there's there's anything else you want to say before we before we wrap up. 
I guess, you know, the only thing that I would want to say would be just if we can do more of what you're doing, I guess, you know, to educate more, to to get more people know what we're doing, outreach to more and more people that don't necessarily have the capacity and the 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 resources to reach scientific kind of observation. If we can do more of that and to educate more, I think this is an amazing initiative and thank you so much for doing it i think you know we need more and more people like you well, thank you so much <laughs> thank you for, for you thank you for doing it and i think everyone will enjoy this one a lot well, so. thank you so much that thank was really you. fun <laughs>